0: I am only five foot and 103 pounds. When I got pregnant, I'm tiny and I grow big babies. He's putting her in at 41 weeks because no one wants to
1: work over the weekend. There's
0: no urgency. And basically saving her spot so they can
1: get the schedule for the next week organized. You will hardly remember this chapter years from now. You're going to really come out of this and feel completely like yourself again in every way. So don't overanalyze it and don't get down about it by all means. This is what happens. I mean, this is how our body
0: manages to do this. Your body wants to do everything in its power to get your baby out through the
1: vagina and through your pelvis. Libido question. I'm four months postpartum and have zero libido. Is this normal? I feel like it's not. Listen. If you are about to go in for Pitocin,
0: wouldn't you rather take a little bit of vodka than go have a Pitocin induction? I
1: just, I don't know why those are my only two choices. <laughs> I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Tresha Ludwig, certified nurse
0: midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture?
1: Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hello, and welcome to the June Q&A. You ready, Tricia? I am ready. Okay. Got all the questions lined up? We have great questions
0: as we always do. Before we get into our excellent questions, let's just remind our audience that we now have an extended version of the Q&A
1: over on Apple subscriptions. That's right. We now have a monthly subscription available to those who are on an Apple device. And with that, you get all of our episodes, including virtually every single episode we've ever produced ad-free, entirely ad-free. And extended and bonus episodes. So we are starting with all ad-free and extended Q and A's. So you'll always get many more questions if you're an Apple subscriber to our monthly Q and A episodes. But the really exciting news is we have our introductory price, which is way less than the price of a cup of coffee. (laughs) Your coffee at a (laughs) gas station, Right, right? Way less than a cup of coffee at, say, Starbucks. A good cup of coffee. Yeah, I guess that's possibly true too. And that's an introductory price, but we will make the commitment to grandfather anyone who is an early subscriber to that. So when the price goes up, yours will not. Again, with that price, you get ad-free episodes and extended Q&As and sporadic uh, bonus content. And we're already planning some of those as well. So we hope that you will join us on Apple subscriptions. And thank you if you already have. Sorry for all your Android users, but... (laughs)
2: We this really is...
1: appreciate the support though. Yeah, I know. It's too bad we can't do it on every platform, but uh, this is this a starting for all of starting us. place. Yeah. So it'd be better for us too, if we could have that available everywhere,
0: but you guys submit so many awesome questions. We just can't put them all in, uh, in a monthly Q and a, so we have some extra amazing questions that are going over into our extended Q and a,
1: and it is like producing a whole extra episode. Um, before we start, Tricia, I want to share a message that we got from someone on Instagram, because I think what we need to do, especially as we're planning some bonus content, we just have to have more conversations about the everyday birth stories that are happening. And this message is a really good example of something that feels normal to this mom. Probably. She probably feels like this is a normal situation and she doesn't have a lot of options, but to you and to me, I'm sure we're both going to have some things to say about it. So let me quickly read this before we jump into the questions we've planned for the episode. It says, Hey ladies, I need some advice. I'm currently 40 weeks plus five days. Now she wrote this last Friday. My midwife who works for major, very well-known hospital will be filling out paperwork for an induction on Sunday or Monday. How she explained it is that she is putting me in as being 41 weeks, because sometimes it takes a few days to get in for the induction. I wasn't too thrilled about it because I would love to labor at home. I agreed to a cervical check because she said she needed to put down on a form where I was. I was hesitant about doing it. But here is what she said The baby, well, she says the baby is 40% effaced. The cervix is 40% effaced, half a centimeter dilated, and at negative three station. Can I put it off? What are your thoughts? I have a bunch of thoughts on this. I'm sure you do too. Do you want to start off with any, Tricia?
0: Well, first of all, if there is no true indication for induction, then of course she can put it off and she should put it off.
1: These are the kind of red flag things that I hear as well. You can often look to your own language when you're asking questions of someone or even sharing your thoughts with your partner, listen carefully to your own language. Look at what she wrote. I wasn't too thrilled about this plan. She said, I wasn't too thrilled about this. Well, that says a lot right there she said, because I would love to labor at home. She really didn't say anything about the benefits of going into labor naturally and spontaneously. And those are significant benefits. I'm not buying this whole, the midwife said she needs to put down on the form, how far along she was. That's ridiculous. They don't. Have they, to they want that a down. Bishop score. They w- it's called the Bishop score. And they want to have
0: the cervical ripeness, cervical readiness to know whether induction is actually going to be
1: effective or not. And or clearly useful. it won't be if she's only 40% effaced half a centimeter dilated negative three station. This is a perfect example of when a adu- induction is very unlikely to work. And this woman's going to be subjected to God knows how many hours of induction uncomfortably only to be told she has failure to progress and end up with a C-section. I wish is, I wish this not to be the case for this woman. And I don't mean to sound cynical, but this is exactly what's going wrong. With maternity care in the United States. This is exactly why our C-section rates are too high and our maternal mortality rates are off the charts when every other industrialized nation is getting safer and we keep going higher.
0: This is the classic example of the cascade of intervention that ultimately leads to a less than desirable outcome for the mom. There's nothing in that story that said a single thing about the mother or the baby necessitating induction.
1: And this whole thing, like she's putting her in at 41 weeks, you know why? Because she's 40 weeks plus five days. And it was a Friday. She's putting her in at 41 weeks because no one wants to work over the weekend. There's no urgency. And basically saving her spot so they can get the schedule for the next week organized. Yeah, exactly. And Tricia, what, ha- what happens when they say they need the information and the client says, I'm not agreeing to a vaginal exam,
0: a whole bunch of red tape for not being able to schedule the induction is what happens. She wouldn't be able to schedule the induction.
1: Well, that's exactly what we want. That's right.
0: So decline the vaginal exam and you can't be induced.
1: Sometimes we open up a can of worms for ourselves without realizing it. I think the big takeaway is you didn't want the vaginal exam. That should say everything to everyone. She's scheduling scheduling an induction without a medical indication of anything, and clearly her body is nowhere near ready at 40% effaced, half a centimeter dilated, and negative three station.
0: I think the most important takeaway is that we should never be scheduling inductions when they're not medically indicated. Correct. You can walk around at three centimeters for two weeks. You right. can also be zero centimeters at the start of labor and have a baby within 12 hours. So- it just doesn't tell you that much, but some women actually do like to have the information. They have a right to that information, but you should never do it if it is not what you want to do. That's,
1: that's it. Um, all right. Let's jump into the questions we planned to talk about. I see you pulled a bunch for us here.
0: Yes. So the first one says, I have an odd question. I have a narrow pelvis and I grow big babies, it seems, and I just wasn't able to get my first son out vaginally. And after hours and hours of pushing, we ended up with a C-section. This time around, it seems I'm growing another nine pounder and we are planning a VBAC. Is there anything I can do to literally widen or stretch my pelvis? I feel confident in my pelvic floor, my flexibility, my strength, but my pelvis is just so small. I am only five foot. And 103 pounds when I got
1: pregnant, I'm tiny and I grow big babies help. There are millions of women who are five feet tall or shorter height really doesn't have anything to do with this. And it's easy to form the belief that your pelvis is too small, but your pelvis is highly unlikely to make a baby that your body isn't able to birth. I think I just wish. Before answering this, I wish we had written back to her and asked the question, I know we're both thinking, Tricia, what position was she in when she was laboring last time and what position was her baby? Because that's almost definitely why she ended up um, not having her baby vaginally.
0: Well, not just um, position, but were there any interventions? Did she have an epidural early in labor? Was she induced? I mean, all of those things play into your baby's ability to optimally position Yes, uh, you know, that's true that a small person, I mean, being under five feet is a little bit of a risk factor. So we we cannot go into it thinking that the pelvis is too small. We do, we have to trust that just what you said, Cynthia, that our body will grow the perfect size baby for our body. And we have to do the things in labor that allow our baby and our body to work together to fit just right. I mean. I saw a photo on Instagram the other day that was so shocking, the molding of this baby's head. If you would have seen it, you would have sort of been a little bit freaked out because the baby's head was so misshapen and the cranial bones were overlapping so significantly. But this is what happens. I mean, this is how our body manages to do this. Your body wants to do everything in its power to get your baby out through the vagina and through your pelvis and your baby's head will literally the bones will overlap each other and your baby's head can go from being 10 centimeters in width to eight centimeters because it must in order to make it through your pelvis. So you have to trust the process, but if you are restricted, if you are on your back, if you have an epidural, which sometimes can be helpful, but not if you get it too soon, but if you are in a lot of pain I mean all these things that we talk about on the podcast all the time that interfere with the natural physiologic process of birth and the hormones that must work together to relax our pelvis and make sure we have effective uterus uterine contractions all of those things must be aligned especially when we
1: have a tight fit that's what I'd say next one this is for you Trisha breastfeeding plugged duct question hi there I just listened to Trisha's minisode about plugged ducts episode 98 Because when my daughter was about four months to nine months old, I got plugged ducts constantly. I always produced plenty of milk and rarely collected extra with my Haka pump. I think it was one of the most challenging parts of that first year postpartum. I'm grateful to learn that cold compress is the way to go because my go-to was to sleep with my heating pad on my chest as it seemed to alleviate some of the discomfort. And I kind of thought the heat would help. I was not even considering that the heat was likely making it worse by causing more milk production. In the end, the only thing that I found sped up the process of unclogging the duct was filling my Haka pump with one to two tablespoons of Epsom salts and warm water and letting that draw milk out of my breast for a while before my daughter would nurse. I honestly was skeptical, but it seriously helped. Just thought I would mention that. And maybe you can comment on it if you've heard of this. Hawk, how clever she wrote H A A K (laughs) instead of hack. Oh, I love the cleverness. Hack. Sorry for the pun. No, that was great. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. Your newly devoted listener, Liz. Adorable. Trisha, what do you say? I have so much to
0: say about this question. Hmm. I mean, I could just go down, I could go down so many paths. I'm gonna try to keep it focused. Yes, baby's latch could have potentially changed between 4 and 9 months a little bit with teething and c- contributed to plug ducts because the baby wasn't maybe draining the breast as well, but I don't I think that's lower on the on the likely list of what was really going on. When she says that she used the haka, oh no first, let me go back to heating. Yes, it is a misconception that we should put heat on a plug duct because heat draws milk into the breast and when we have a plug we are trying to eliminate the breast from being engorged. We're trying to drain and empty the breast. And if we just keep putting heat on, it can make it worse. Cold is often better, but not always. Some others really have to go by what feels right to them. If cold feels really relieving, keep going with cold. If heat for some reason feels like it's working and suddenly your breasts are flowing and draining, then go with heat a little bit, but don't overdo heat. And the biggest thing is don't overdo massage because we've all been told that when we have a plug duct, we should get in there and just start kneading and massaging and working it out. And honestly, that makes it worse because a plug duct is not just thick stuck milk. It's also inflammation. It's also, um, damaged tissue
1: Oh wow! creating.
0: Yes. And this is a lot of people don't know this. This is, Mm -hmm. this is more new understanding of how the breast works. So we don't want to be in there grinding away at massaging on the breast because then we're just contributing to the problem. We do want to try to drain the breast and we don't even actually want to over pump. We want to try to nurse or use our hands to hand express. She also mentioned that she was using the Haka with the tablespoons of Epsom salt. And, um, that was helping unclog the duct, which that is actually a treatment for a, a bled in the nipple or a plug in the nipple, a blockage in the nipple. So if she potentially had these blockages in the nipples for months on end, this is why she had ongoing plug ducts. And the third part is that because she, even though she was draining the breast with the haka before feeding, and that seemed to work, it may in the long-term have contributed to the recurrence of the plug duct. So in the short term, it was relieving it, but over many, many months, because she was then in a bit of an oversupply situation, it was creating the continuation of it. So how interesting. And this will oh, also <laughs> lead
1: to mastitis, which is so awful to experience. Definitely. Yeah, if the milk if it stays too but long. they're always saying massage the breasts for mastitis and now we have to no, no. Yeah. of that. Oh yeah. my gosh, I can't believe that because yeah. I experienced mast- mastitis so much myself. That was always the advice. Just massage.
0: there is a there is a specific form of massage for plug ducks that can be effective, but it is not massaging on the plug. It's called clear the path massage. And it's actually massaging in front of the plug between the plug and the nipple, as if you're trying to squeeze the last bits of toothpaste out of a toothpaste container. But again, you still don't want to overdo it because we don't want to inflame the breast more.
1: Interesting how, um, I don't know, the word intervention always comes into my mind. And now we're thinking about massaging too much as another intervention that just causes more problems for nature to resolve the issue on its own.
2: Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day, So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy.
0: Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared any time during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, sooth dot and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed, a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal Head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Well, this is a great example of why you cannot go to Google to figure out how to manage your breastfeeding issue. And you really need to be working specifically with a lactation consultant who understands your individual story because your baby is a factor in it. Your breastfeeding history is a factor in it. Your supply is a factor in it. There's so much to understand.
1: All right. Let's go to the next one. It says, when I was giving birth to my second baby, I requested a vaginal exam because I thought I was progressing quickly upon my arrival. I was on my hands and knees on the bed and the resident commence eye roll, LOL, told me she couldn't feel anything. I needed to be on my back. I refused. So the intern inserted her hands and said, I can't find the cervix because the intern had... The intern had unusually short fingers.
0: (laughs) Well, I think she was saying because she was on her hands and knees. I know.
1: Um, I refused. My question is, can you do a vaginal exam in other positions? Tricia, what's your experience been? Because clearly most of your clients have not been on their backs most of the time. But they tend to get in that position for vaginal exams. I mean, I was asked to by my midwives. Yes, I will say
0: that sometimes getting on your back for a vaginal exam helps Um, the person doing the vaginal exam get a much better exam, but it is absolutely not necessary. And if you get skilled at doing vaginal exams in other positions, you can do them in other positions. You can check a cervix on hands and knees. You can check a cervix in a squatting position. You can check a cervix in a sideline position. I've checked a cervix in the shower while a woman was showering.
1: Why do you think the intern couldn't find the cervix?
0: Because he was an intern (laughs) who... didn't probably know what they were doing and had never checked a woman
1: in a hands and knees position before. Oh, wow. That's interesting. They were probably just, they didn't even know like where to aim their fingers probably or something like that.
0: I had no idea what they were feeling. They're like, this is all backwards. I don't know. I only know how to do this if your knees are up and you're on your back and I got a light shining and right. Yes, it's easier. So yeah, there are times when if you really, 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 really need to figure out like really need to figure out the baby's head position or something like that, then yes, getting a woman onto her back so you can get the most clear feeling could be helpful. But if you're just checking for progress, you should be able to do it in any position. All
1: right. Next question. What are the risks of external cephalic version? Um, All right. So let's start by talking about what an ECV is. If your baby is breached at the end of pregnancy, your provider will most likely encourage you to go for an ECV. Trisha, you can talk about this, but I was encouraged to get one when I was planning my home birth and my daughter was breached until the last month. And, um, I did refuse, but it's my understanding. You have to go to the hospital. They give you some kind of drug to relax the uterus. They hook you up to an ultrasound, and then they manually attempt to maneuver the baby head down. My husband turned to the baby with the help of a midwife over the phone, and it was the most gentle thing imaginable. So he did, I guess, a gentle version all by himself. Um, not something we typically recommend at all, but apparently when it happens in the hospital, it can really be very uncomfortable. Can you, have you ever been present for one, Tricia, or can you talk more about what those are like for women?
0: Yeah. Well, statistically they're successful about 60% of the time. Okay. So that's the data. Three to 4% of babies will be breached at term. So maybe sometimes we're doing external cephalic versions too soon. um, Or too late. Or yes, too late, but you can actually do them in labor. I'm just saying that the the success rate would go down if we were doing them, you know, routinely on every baby at at, uh, 36 weeks, even though there's more space at that time to do it. But then that would make the success rate go down. Okay. I think probably throughout history, midwives were turning babies at home gently without ultrasound and uterine relaxants for many, 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 many years, or they were just birthing breech babies. One of the two, if the baby didn't turn, then they just birthed the breech baby. But the the main risk is that you can have a change in your baby's heart rate that happens in about 5% of cases. Usually it's temporary, but if it's not, so if they're during, if they're more aggressively turning the baby, or there's something that they're not aware of and, and they cause a heart rate abnormality, then unfortunately you, you are at risk of an emergency C-section. You can also have an abruption of the placenta, cord prolapse, vaginal bleeding, but those are quite rare. So I, I would say because breach is not, breach vaginal birth is not an option in most places. It should be more, we know that, but it's not. So if your baby is breach, in the last weeks of pregnancy, I would definitely recommend an ECV. I think the risks are low. It might be uncomfortable, but I would rather that than a C section. Okay. And it can also be done in labor. Did I mention that? You if you didn't. come into labor and you and your baby's still breached, it can still be done at that time. So don't think that there's no
1: other option. The tricky thing is that a woman is told well before she's in labor that she needs to schedule a C section. And that's usually the reason why it isn't happening more often in labor. I have had many clients over the years refuse to do that. And even if they were willing to agree or acquiesce to a C-section because of a breech baby, and if they were at peace with that, many of the clients I've worked with insisted on not scheduling and waiting until they went into labor naturally and spontaneously. And at that point, they had the satisfaction of knowing the baby was coming when the baby was ready, which was usually 41 plus weeks as it typically is. They also had the satisfaction of doing an ultrasound in labor, just to make sure the baby hadn't turned head down and really accepting that this was how they were going about their C-section, but the peace it can bring some women that they did that on their terms. I mean, that's really the right way to go for some people. And I just thought that that was, I think that's empowering to always remember your options. If your baby is breech, you can absolutely go for an ECV. You can plan a breech baby, listen to episode seven. (laughs) It's a great episode. Um, or insist on going into labor naturally and spontaneously before going for your C-section. You have more choices than you will be led to believe is something I wish everyone knew. Totally agree. Yep. So, all right. Next one, libido question. I'm four months postpartum and have zero libido. Is this normal? I feel like it's not. You feel like it's not because n- no one's talking. <laughs> when if everyone were talking, they would mostly be saying it is normal. This is maybe the this is something we need to do a poll on
0: in our community and see where people's libido is at four months postpartum. I would say for it's gotta be the vast majority are not feeling a very high libido at this point. You're still just coming out of the fourth trimester of, you know, post baby. If you're breastfeeding, you have those lower levels of estrogen. You have the the dryness that comes with um, breastfeeding And you have the sleep deprivation of being a new mom, whether you're breastfeeding or not. So I think it's very normal to have a little libido at this point.
1: And let's be honest beyond the uh, exhaustion. It's a tough time in a lot of relationships. There's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of adjustments. It's not necessarily the foreplay that most people want the romantic foreplay before getting into bed, positively exhausted. When you're hurt about a petty argument, you're feeling like you're bearing too much of the workload. You have the recognition that your partner's life is not all that different from how it was before the baby and yours is completely different. And I say this from the experience of running a weekly postpartum support group. Um, if you want to hear, the women speaking directly, you can listen to the episode that we just published in on the first Wednesday in June, a postpartum roundtable episode, but these are real conversations with real people. Um, and no matter how solid a relationship is, it is a really hard time for couples to connect. The exhaustion alone is a reason for it. The breasts don't feel sexual. I mean, your body doesn't feel sexual emotionally and mentally often because you're used to feeling sexual before you have a baby, maybe even in pregnancy, but postpartum, your body feels like, oh, this is what all these parts are for, right? <laughs> like This is why it was made this way, is to have a baby and feed a baby. And we can feel touched out. So it's kind of surprising when you hear of women who are back to having sex on a fairly regular basis by four or five months. That's actually quite surprising in both of our experiences, right? Yeah. Plus you're not
0: ovulating. And that cycle of ovulation and that peak that we get mid cycle that really drives our libido is absent right there's hormones there's exhaustion there's conflict or frustration with partners there's touched out i think that's such an important one our bodies just feel like just constantly you know our body is just constantly needed by another being
1: did you see the app did you see the video i posted on instagram over the weekend Oh yeah. The monkeys wasn't that the nipple, the twiddling of the
0: nipple. And then the mom just like smacked it. (laughs) The baby did like a flip. That's how we feel touched out. It's like, get off me, everybody stay away. I used to call my kids parasites. I'm like, I feel like the parasites have just sucked me dry. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And
1: just want everyone to remember if you're in that parasites. No, of course not. But you know, if you're in that postpartum stage, it's really important to remind everyone, this is not the rest of your life. You look at this baby and think, Oh my gosh, this is my life. No, this is just the chapter right now. You will hardly remember this chapter years from now. You're going to really come out of this and feel completely like yourself again in every way. So don't overanalyze it and don't get down about it by all means. Just let yourself be at this moment in your life of being in the early months, postpartum, just let it be your, everything is happening as it should you're healthy and this is normal and it's all going to be okay. And that sex drive totally comes back.
0: I mean, yeah. it's even if it's later in your life after
1: having kids, I mean, cause you go through this each time you have kids, but it comes back. It Don't comes worry. Back. Everything comes back. Next question is what are your thoughts on using castor oil to induce labor? Trisha? Um, so what are my thoughts on using castor
0: oil to induce labor? I think it's better than Pitocin, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, so basically castor oil is an oil that you consume and it works by stimulating your bowels because it's extremely
1: uh bowel stimulating. <laughs> How else do I describe <laughs> it? It's gonna give you why, diarrhea. Why does that trigger labor? Anyway, I know gastrointestinal stuff can like spicy food. Yeah. Cause it, why?
0: Well, castor oil is so stimulating to the bowels that your bowels are sitting right on your uterus. So it creates this motility of your bowels and the, the, um, the sort of distress that your bowels are under causes your uterus to get irritated and potentially triggers it to contract. But this is the problem with castor oil is that it may just cause uterine irritation and not Hmm. actual effective contraction. So if you take it too soon, if you took castor oil at 37 weeks, you'd probably just have uterine irritability and nothing would happen. But if you took castor oil, when your body is just on the brink of going into labor, it can be just enough to kind of put you over the edge. So it has been shown to be effective, but there is not great evidence on it. and it does seem to make a difference if there are other things going on. Like if your cervix is favor- favorable, if you're beyond 41 weeks, especially if your water is broken, it seems to work better. It doesn't have a lot of negatives other than it can make you feel nauseous and it can create that, that uterine irritability, but not labor. And that's kind of frustrating.
1: You wrote mixed um, with orange juice and a shot of vodka. Are you joking? <laughs> no. So that was what? That was the. Re- are,
0: are you You cannot kidding? drink castor oil on its own. You Wait a minute. Cannot. Are you
1: actually saying mix with orange juice and a shot of? Are you joking? That a is of one of pregnancy. That Who is would one of that? the re-
0: Well, it's not a full shot. It's like a Maybe. Uh, <laughs>
1: what? quarter ounce or something. You know what? Wait, but why would anyone have the vodka part? Because I just it, put an orange. It's juice?
0: not palatable. It's just not palatable,
1: and it kind of cuts the. Neither is vodka. <laughs> Well, it's not <laughs> it's, it's I guess, palatable. I guess you think it is palatable, Tasha. I mean, only you
0: know. I don't,
1: I don't, it. I don't
0: listen. It. If you are about to go in for pitocin, wouldn't you rather take a little bit of vodka than go have a pitocin induction? I just I don't know
1: why those are my only two choices.
0: There, it's not. That was just what I was trained. That was what my midwife told me to do. I didn't take castor oil, but that's what we did in our practice. Wow. There are plenty of other ways to do it, but take it, you got to take it in the morning because if you do it at night and then you're in, you're in uterine irritability all night, that's going to be a miserable night.
1: So, so I just have to go back to this. The only reason to put it with vodka is what that's safe for the baby.
0: A, 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 a tiny bit of vodka is not going to hurt the baby. No.
1: <laughs> Why have it?
0: Because it, it makes it for some reason, the vodka and the orange juice and the castor oil work together to make it more palatable because people can vomit taking this. It's not easy to get
1: down People can vomit from alcohol.
2: I don't know. This is all right.
1: We're going to have to, we're going to just have to, we're going to get back to everyone on that. (laughs) If we get any more information, because it's way too fun and interesting to talk about. Who else has heard that out there? Tell us. Did you mention contraindications? Oh yeah. Yes. So yes. Um,
0: the one other note about castor oil, it is, is not recommended if you have high blood pressure because of what it does to the smooth muscle contraction in your, in your, in your digestive tract and your GI tract can happen also in your blood vessels. So it can increase high blood pressure. So you should not do it if you have high blood pressure. Okay. Next one is on baby care. We don't get questions on baby care too much. So this is fun. What are your thoughts on bouncers, swings, walkers, etc. for babies? I feel like everyone tells me to get them, but I'm not sure I need them. What is actually necessary? Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia Cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top-notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at Davinandadley.com. And use your promo code DOWNTOBIRTH to to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms, do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to Silveretteusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save
1: 15%. Well, we talked with, um, on track baby a couple months ago about all this stuff. And most of it really isn't not only not necessary, most of it is not only not necessary, but not even ideal. Remember they kept saying, just lay out a little blanket and put your baby on their stomach and let them crane their neck and arch up and develop in that way. So yeah, I think
0: that we can way, way overdo the amount of baby toys and items and things that we need to keep our babies entertained. And I loved what um, on-track baby said about just literally take a little blanket with you everywhere you go and everywhere you are, put that blanket down on the floor, put your baby down on, on their tummy. They should either be on their tummy, on the floor or on you, you wearing them. Now, if they're older, that's a little bit different. You know, once they're crawling and things, sometimes having a, I used to have the Jolly Jumper. I thought that thing was amazing. It was like a little bouncer that you hung in the doorway and this was when, you know, my kids were maybe nine months, nine months to 15 months, and you needed them to be contained because you're like making dinner and you're don't want them crawling around unattended. So you can put them in a little bouncer or jelly jumper and they stay occupied and they're having fun and you can keep them in one place.
1: That sounds nice. So, And baby wearing is always recommended just for the record. You mentioned that. I just want to make that clear that on-track baby said baby wearing is always
0: Always, always good. It's the best thing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you want to put them down. Oh yeah, them to be a little more contained. Then I think you know these options are fine. But you definitely don't need them for the very young newborns, and you don't need like ten different things. Maybe just get one.
1: Yeah, I mean when you're when people are telling you to do things, because that's not going to stop. My first thought is always, okay, we've been doing this for millions of years, and virtually no one in these millions of years did this. So was that. Better? Have we really improved things by creating this stuff or have we not? And in I think many cases we haven't necessarily improved things. So just, you know, imagine if you had no intervention, nothing, and then think of what you would carefully add in to make your situation healthier, safer, better. You don't need all the stuff de jour that you know people are buying and putting on their list, just keeping it simple. And you get so overwhelmed with all this stuff in the house, right? Oh, That's it's the worst. Stressful. I mean, that I think, I think having
0: too much baby stuff is just a headache. Oh, it's so, so
1: stressful. So hard to clean up and keep tidy and no one yeah. likes to live in a cluttered and house. And it's all ugly. Who wants to look at yeah, it anyway? all? Plastic. So much plastic. <laughs> yeah. That's why we love slings. Well, I think it's time for the quickies segment. All right, let's do it. Let's fire away. Ready? Yes. Why is cord prolapse dangerous?
0: Okay. So cord prolapse is dangerous because if the cord is, well, first of all, it is, it is very dangerous and it is an emergency situation if it happens. And the reason it's dangerous is because if the cord is coming out before any, any presenting part of the baby, whether that's a butt, a head or body, then as that head or body comes through, the cord is inevitably going to be smushed up against the bones and blood supply And therefore oxygen is going to be cut off to the baby and we can't risk that. So next wiki. my doctor ordered Pitocin because she said she had clinic in the morning and I wasn't dilating fast enough. I don't know how to feel about
1: this. I guess the question is, should I be mad? (laughs) It sounds like the birth has happened. Well, you can listen to our episode on Pitocin in November of 2021 where we present, I think, all the angles on this. Yeah,
0: I think the, the quick answer here is that she gave you Pitocin because you weren't going fast enough. She had a clinic in the morning, is a, not a proper indication for Pitocin. So that's right. Why is postpartum sex so painful? Um, because our bodies are not ready <laughs> yet. So we're often having sex a little too soon, feeling pressure to have sex too soon. We may have some unhealed tissue damage that still needs some time. We may have pelvic floor
1: damage that needs a longer period of time of healing. Inflammation, little abrasions in the tissue, if not major tearing dryness. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of changes to the pelvic floor
0: and to the vaginal tissue post-birth that requires a lot more than six weeks of time to heal. And again, that if you're breastfeeding, there's a lot of vaginal dryness and that can
1: make sex more painful too. And I guess the most important reason that it's hard to even think of sometimes, but the most important reason is really the brain is the most sexual organ by far. And typically sex works well when you're in a state of feeling not just that everything is in working order, but that you're actually in the mood to have sex. You want to have sex. You're feeling closeness. You're feeling trust. You're feeling arousal. And postpartum sex often doesn't quite encompass the whole package like that. It's often this feeling like, well, let's start doing this and getting back to it or getting this over with. And it's a little too soon and you might not be emotionally in the same place as you were when you were typically having sex with your partner. So cut yourself a little slack there for not being quite up to speed emotionally and mentally, because that is a big factor in sex and in how your body responds. One more quickie. Um, What are your thoughts on Ashley Graham's twin home birth story?
0: I mean, I don't know who that is. Wait, we need to look up who Ashley Graham is. Oh, God. Um, Ashley Graham, she is a model, I believe. Yes. Ashley Graham is a model who had a twin home birth. So, just for that reason, we love her. We don't yeah. know anything about her, <laughs> but we love her because she had a twin home birth and we're major fans of that. I mean, that's fantastic that she did that. And probably we should get in touch with her and bring her on the podcast to tell her story. Absolutely. So, if anyone knows Ashley, let us know how to reach her. We'll see if we can get that twin home birth story on the pod. This
1: one says, I live in Connecticut and I'm wondering where you recommend going for a three day weekend with my family. Nice. A little well, off topic. Cute. Why not? <laughs> yeah, the Northeast is awesome because it's so densely packed. We're within, just four hours. Most of the places you live here, you're within four hours of DC, Philly, Boston, of course, New York City, and a host of beautiful coastal cities and getaways.
0: That's one of the reasons I really enjoy living in Connecticut because you just within a couple hours, you can access the mountains, the ocean, the islands, skiing, hiking, surfing quaint
1: little historical villages, amazing food. Yeah, it's beautiful. Going There's just the so much to see. It's the most European part of our country for sure, because it's old America. So you sometimes see paper stone or cobblestone and beautiful churches and steeples as you drive around. It's just a beautiful part of the country. So let us know where you decide to go. But honestly, we can't recommend because we wouldn't even know where to begin. A dozen came to mind right away when we even saw the question. <laughs> Who can well, pick?
0: What's your number one?
1: Oh, gosh. It depends on my mood. I mean, lately, Maine, but um, in Martha's Vineyard's always been one of my favorites. I went there every year for years. I went to Newport with my mother every year for years until I had children. Um, but I keep discovering new beautiful little cities. In the past five years, I've found Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, Ogunquit, Maine. Um, newburyport massachusetts there's no end and i'm looking forward to discovering more i still try to find the new areas i haven't discovered yet in the northeast (laughs) last one says not a question i just love y'all both so much adopt me (laughs) where do we sign the papers
0: thanks for joining us at the down to birth show you can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere.
1: Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. And what, where does that word come from? I, anyway, go on.
0: Yeah. What is
1: the definition of prodromal? <laughs> Why is exactly? it called prodromal? I, I mean, um, intra- pro forward, right?
0: Drome relating or relating to the period between the appearance of initial symptoms and the full development of a rash or fever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it is actually, as it, as it relates to birth, it is relating to the period between the appearance of initial symptoms, contractions, and the full development of labor. So that's why it's called prodromal labor. Odd.